This is Parking in Bitterman Circle number 58 for 9-22-2020. Hi, it's Aaron. Welcome to Parking in Bitterman Circle. Today's guest is David Morgan, front of house mixer. We're going to talk about some exceptional times we shared together on the road, what was weird every night, and what's going on with the age of emulation. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, we are recording. Recording. Good. Stay. Be good. That was just the weirdest thing. Um, so who are you and where are you from? My name is David Morgan and I live in Thousand Oaks, California. And what do you do? I am the front of house engineer for James Taylor, Stevie Nicks, and last year for Fleetwood Mac. Wow. Um, what was the first concert you attended? Probably the first concert that I went to without my parents mm-hmm. uh, would probably have been one of our weekend journeys into Harvard Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to go see Tom Rush at the Club 47. Mm. Tom Rush was a Harvard dropout who was an absolute idol in uh, the Boston folk scene at the time. This is, you know, early 60s. Mm-hmm. We take the T into Harvard Square. Done that before. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was fortunate. I actually got to live there for, I don't know, three or four years. So uh, school didn't last long, but uh, Boston did. It's a a wonderful city uh, if you're young and you enjoy walking. Yeah, because you can get just about anywhere you need to go in about 20 minutes. Yeah, it's small. You know, it, it really is small. And it, it, that's what makes it so fun. I mean, my four years at Boston University were just a pleasure. So starting out, did you start out on the East Coast uh, in the in the business, so to speak? Yeah, I was I was born in uh, in Boston and in, in four years after World War Two ended. And it was a uh, I grew up outside of Boston in, in, in a sleepy little suburb, and uh, it was a, kind of an idyllic way to grow up. We had 50 acres of woods across the street from the house, and it was, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a, 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 a way of life that's pretty much disappeared now. Uh, and it's all the houses in my neighborhood. I was, I was distressed to find out that all the houses in my neighborhood have been turned into McMansions. Yikes. And the sleepy little suburb that I grew up in is now one of the wealthiest communities in the United States of America. So uh, I wouldn't have grown up there, get you know, in in, uh, in present in, in its present circumstance. Uh, so I, I I started out playing a guitar and singing when I was fourteen years old, and played various bands that played all over New England and and, and down in New York and. Uh, so that's how I got in the business. I, I, and I got into the tech side of it because I was the guy who owned the van, owned the PA, owned half the band gear, yeah. you know, booked the gigs, uh, you know, 
signed up the guys, paid the guys, uh, you know, I, I got paid by the, the, the club or whatever. So uh, it was, uh, it, I was always somewhere between being a musician and a roadie and a, and a, and a tour manager, but uh, it was, uh, it, it was a good living. I, I, I did pretty well at it. And, but in uh, my late twenties, I decided I, w- I wanted to concentrate on the engineering side. And so I tried working in studios that didn't work out. I was, I don't have the temperament to work in studios. I don't have the patience and I don't have the attention span. Mm -hmm. And you have to be a special personality to, to work successfully in that, that particular environment. And, uh, I tried, I, I crashed and burned and, 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 and ended up, uh, being one of the guys who used to rotate in and out, working out at the Palomino in mm-hmm. North Hollywood, which was at the time was the most famous and uh, probably the only Southern California country and Western uh, venue. And uh, I helped install the, the new PA that was going in there. And I helped uh, put it in the, the brand new 24 channel PM 1000 uh, <laughs> in front of house board from which we did, we had two, it had four sins on it, two pre and two post. And uh, so we did monitors from front of house. We had those old community sound and light uh, fiberglass buckets that, 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 that were the monitors with a single, single 12 and a horn. And it just honked at you like you wouldn't believe. And uh, so that was my introduction to, to mixing big time acts because uh, country bands didn't didn't travel with their own crews other than band guys, right. uh, and uh, you know I got to mix country legends back then. It was it, it, George Jones, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, Vern Gosden, uh, amazing players, singers, and uh, you know uh, the few times I had to step aside, it was uh, it was it was a joy just to watch what was going on anyway. And so I got really, I became a real country music fan by working out there. And, uh, but one night a guy from a sound company said, uh, you really know what you're doing here. And you, you really make this little club sing and, and here, go, go see my boss. And so it was from a, a major sound company. And, and that was my start in, in, uh, that was the, the door opening for me as far as getting into the national touring scene rather than mm-hmm. a, being a local sound guy. So uh, I ended up going out on the road as a, pushing boxes like everybody else does, you know, pulling four out, uh, getting dirty, and worked my way up to being a crew chief very quickly. Uh, by the end of my second year, uh, at the sound company, I was crew chief on the Doobie Brothers, and that I en- ended up inheriting the, the the front house job, and it was just as everything else is in show business, being in the right place at the right time. But uh, when the door opened, I, I certainly walked through it. You know, uh, there was no trepidation. I, I I I had a goal in mind, and there are worse, many worse things in life and show business than mixing the Doobie Brothers. You know? yeah. oh, it was such a great gig. I, I love those guys so much and I'd be grateful to them forever for, for giving me uh, 
my start in big time front house mixing. And Pat Simmons was the greatest boss in the world. And all the guys in the band are so cool. And uh, I, I couldn't have asked for a, a better start to my career. That's for sure. And somehow I've managed to, to, to stay in that position for 41 years. And, uh, but the, the, the biggest door that ever opened for me was in 1986 when, when I got hired to mix the Graceland tour. That was the big door. Even yeah. though I, I, even though I, I had, was out mixing Whitney Houston at the time when Paul's manager came to a show, you know, and mixing Whitney Houston was the biggest thing in the world at the time. Yeah. And uh, yet, I, I, I was just over the moon. When, when, when I found out that I would be mixing the Graceland tour, uh, that was uh, the most fortuitous thing that has probably ever happened to me in my career uh, was getting a call from Ian Hoblin asking me to mix the Graceland tour. And starting that in December of 1986 was the beginning of everything else. It was a huge adventure. Uh, there had been a lot of backlash against Paul uh, while the record was being recorded and after the record was released about, you know, Paul Simon, cultural imperialist. And uh, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, It was a bunch of South African musicians and I'd never worked with any South African musicians. Uh, And uh, it was really... Paul taking a huge chance. And, uh, but when I heard the record, uh, then you couldn't believe any of the rhetoric or negative rhetoric that was -hmm. was being passed around. Uh, It was really an absolute masterpiece. And uh, for those who didn't understand that he wasn't stealing he was sharing. Yeah. And there's a huge difference. Uh, and, and, uh, it was a coming together of, you know, Paul has always borrowed everything. He, Paul's, Paul's musical and, and, and writing career is, is, is a patchwork. He, he mm-hmm. always borrows from here and there, you know, a little reggae and mother and child, a, a little, a little, Latin rhythms in, in me and Julio and uh, you know I mean he, he he pulls from everywhere I mean you've seen it mm-hmm. you've seen him pull arrangements out of his hat he's an absolute genius at putting disparate things together and making the whole sound good and uh, Graceland was was probably uh, the pinnacle of his ability to bridge things. Uh, he did it in a more elegant way on Rhythm of the Saints. Uh, but what he started, you know, his whole vision of, 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 of a truly international music community started with Graceland. And it was such a privilege to be on that. And we ignored all the politics because we, we knew we just had a killer show. Mm-hmm. I mean, starting with the day that we first, when the band first came in to rehearse, be, the day before Paul came, uh, 
Bikini Kamalo, bass player, opened up this beat up road case. Uh, it wasn't even a road case, it was just a guitar case, right? And we look inside and there's this, this old beat to crap washburn bass in there. The, the, the neck pickup is being held in with, with cheap gaffer's tape, right? And we're thinking, oh no, this is gonna be a nightmare. And uh, he plugs into the amplifier we had for him at John Henry's where we were rehearsing in London. And that sound came out when he started to play the boy in a bubble riff, right? And we went, oh my God, that bass is the sound. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had to readjust our, uh, our parameters of judgment. How's that? And uh, the, the, the next funny story was from that first day was to, me and Mark Silak, the, our, our, our production coordinator, uh, and, and Paul's guitar tech. Uh, Mark and I had organized a deal with Honer accordions. And we got this really beautiful, rich sounding, loud accordion, right? And you had to have something that would really produce some air. You know, you couldn't have a sweet sounding, quiet Lawrence Welk kind of accordion. You had to have something that would play Boy in the Bubble. And so we showed it to Tony and and he picks it up and he looks at it quizzically. and, And you know Tony, right? So you know the face. And he... Uh, says, oh my God, I haven't had one of these in my hand since I was six or seven years old. And Mark turned white because Tony had gotten the gig because he could play the accordion. <laughs> he told everybody that he could play the accordion. And uh, so we're, we're, we're really sweating it the next day when Paul comes in. And because we know he's going to ask for Boy in the Bubble to be played first. We just know it, right? And we have real confidence that it, that, that bass sounding good. We know that. that. Okay, so that's going to make Paul smile. But uh, the whole thing with Tony Cedras playing the, the intro was, was, was an unknown quantity. Well, Paul counts off the song, and... Tony just rips off the intro just perfectly. And it is just mean loud. It's so cool. And Mark Tyler and I are looking at each other going, oh, my God. What is, who is this guy? It turns out, and you, you've heard it, Tony is a musical savant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony can play any musical instrument in the world. And just give him a, a couple, three hours to figure out how the thing works, and he will play it for you. Mm-hmm. Tony's the kind of guy you can uh, play a, a, a melody to, and he'll whistle it back to you with with or or, or, or come back in counterpoint, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's he's and he's just an amazingly gifted uh, player and and, and uh, receiver of information. You know, I mean, he's uh, as uh, as a player, I, I, I always was so in awe of Tony Cedars, you know. And uh, so that first day of rehearsal went well. And that was the biggest thing. Uh, 
And we, we, we got to hear the amazing joy that comes out of a, a guitar played by Ray Perry. I mean, the guy plays with absolute joy and uh, God rest his soul. I, but I mean, that first day of rehearsal was like, good God, what have we actually gotten into ourselves into? I'm looking at Andy Forster and I'm looking at Dicka Jones. And I'm, and I'm looking at, at Jerry Fradley, the monitor guy, and Dick Weber, the, the, the Brit Row guy. And we're going, what have we gotten ourselves into? This might be the coolest thing that ever happened in our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the gift of John Selawani pl- playing the other guitar. The, the, the man who was, who, was, who was a genius of counterpoint guitar. And uh, the the interplay between Ray and John was, was at, went magic from the first day. And, you know, as was the interplay between Francis Fuster, who was our percussionist and Isaac Machali, who was the drummer and, and Isaac Asante, who was the, the, the other percussionist. Mm-hmm. Those, those three guys just blended from day one. And we knew we were onto something exceptional from those, that first week of rehearsal with John Henry. You know, we, uh, we really did get to see this uh, yet another unfolding occur when Rhythm of the Saints started to head out on the road. And not only were we dealing with uh, South Africa, but West Africa and the United States and uh, and uh, who knows where else? Brazil. Yeah. You know, it was... Uh, I it's it's still one of the more I'm I'm very very grateful to you for uh, getting my foot in the door with with that because uh, as a as a first sort of seriously major world tour that I went on uh, it really nothing's come close to uh, to uh, that experience of of just the just the incredible variety of things that you could hear and see and experience. I absolutely agree. It was, it was, as I said earlier, it, it was Paul's artistic pinnacle as a songwriter. And it, even as a guitar player, the stuff he plays on that himself and, mm-hmm. and, and the, uh, the influence of Vincent and Gini and the, the, uh, the way that the, the two of them play together it, on that record is just astounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, I, I will say until my dying day that that was probably the best mu- uh, you know, uh, musical ag- aggregation that's ever been on a stage, uh, except maybe for what we did at the concert event of a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, the two, are, two tours were very different, uh, but the... Uh, the height of artistic achievement was exactly the same. I mean, we went through a period from 1990 through the end of 1993 where we did we were doing the best shows ever anywhere. You know, I'm f- fully convinced of that. And as as I recollect, in 1991, 92, we did 162 shows in 36 countries. Is that mm-hmm. pretty accurate? Yeah. Uh, you know that 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 says it all. <laughs> And so many of those were stadium shows. And so many of those were uh, the best show I've ever heard. 
you know, and then it's a clip clips by the next one is the best show that I ever heard. I mean, at some point I, I get to be part of the audience, you know, uh, well, and, you get, you got to hear Al twice a night. So, I mean, you, know, <laughs> you can't beat that. Well, I, my job is, is so wonderfully unique that I'm, I'm actually the only person on the crew who gets to listen to the entire show all night long. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, while I'm incredibly busy mixing a, a show that had 108 inputs the way that that one did, uh, it, and there are moments in the show where I can cease being the front of house guy and be an audience person for a few seconds just to see how it's working. And in those moments, it was, it was absolute magic when you just let yourself get washed over by the energy in the crowd, especially when we had 750,000 people in New York city in, in, in the summer of 1991. Yes, indeed. That, for me, as a front of house engineer, that, that was the best day of my professional life. And the fact that I had Phil Ramone standing next to me through the entire show, just dancing along with me and Wolfie, was uh, that made it even better. And uh, there's hardly any way I can think of to explain the, the rush that I got when right before the show, I, Wolfie and I decided we'd look back and see how big the crowd was because we couldn't see behind us. There was a huge video screen behind the mm-hmm. back of the back wall of front of house, and so we couldn't see behind. So you had to, you know, get out on the scaffolding and hang out like Tarzan and and then look like uh, look back down the pitch, and it was just such a huge rush to see that crowd, and there, you know. First, you're in disbelief, and second, you're going in, in. Oh my God! And 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 third, it's just oh, this is this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And when we kicked everything off, and all those guys from All the Doom came out, and we started Obvious Child with just everything resonating through the entire center of New York City. Uh, the, the cops said they could hear clearly up on the on the 86th Street crossover from where we were, and uh, it was it was it was the epitome of make a joyful noise. Oh yeah, absolutely, it was uh, remarkable, and and yet again to see Paul in New York playing a yet another doo-wop song, being the obvious child, and. Uh, you know how, how, like you said, how he could borrow, but basically, very often he was uh, he was working from the same the same well that he always goes to. You know, and it was uh, I I thought I and but the thing I think the real revelation I think for all of us had to be Vincent Mangini at that oh. point. And uh, you know, I was just so sad that he's gone. You know, because he, I mean, I think Paul definitely identified with it because he would didn't do his show without Vincent for another 20 or 25 years, you know, from that point on. I mean, you mean Richard? No, Vincent. Oh, well, Vincent just died. Yeah, I know. But I'm just saying, I mean, I, I, I I'm talking about the, the, uh, the, well, talking about, I mean, I, I think that, his, he was a real revelation to me when uh, I'd never heard anybody play guitar like that in my life. No. And, 
and no. and then he worked with Paul for 25 years. Uh, Paul did not. Oh yeah. Didn't didn't want to do anything. He wouldn't have wanted to do a three minute you know solo piece. If, if oh, without Vince. Yeah. Oh yeah. No no yeah no okay yeah, I understand where you're going. Yeah. Uh, Vince Vince in the Born at the Right Time band and and the Concert Event of the Lifetime band we had the best guitar player in in South Africa. We had the best guitar player from Botswana and we had the best guitar player from Cameroon mm-hmm. by from told to us by all the Africans on, on, on the tour. The, yeah. the, these guys are who they, this is who this guy is. You know, mm-hmm. when I first was asking, you know, who's Ray Perry or who, who's Vincent Ingen, who's John Sullivan. And these, we were so blessed to have that. And, uh, but in the years following that, we found out what an amazingly versatile guitar player Vince can be as well, you know, and how the bonding with Paul was so essential to everything that Paul did subsequently. And uh, there were there for the most part, they did great stuff. I really enjoyed the Born of the Right Time stuff. I mean, the uh, the the. the Oh wait a minute! What, what? You're the one. That's it. You're the one. Yes, 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 yes. Sorry for the senior moment. I I really enjoyed the the you're the one tours, mm-hmm. the 2000 through 2002 tours. I I I thought those were really exceptional. I, uh, uh, you know, with the possible exception of the Woodpecker Symphony. And, yeah, well, an acquired taste. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. But you know, even that putting that together. You know, Paul did that pull things out of thin air stuff, you know, you know, okay, let's start with one cajon. Okay, we need another cajon. Okay, we need another cajon doing this. And so, we, you know, we, we had the, it was incredibly complex. It certainly was a little bit lacking in melody, but it was an incredibly complex arrangement. But everyone was playing the drum because, you know, Vincent had his piece of, of, of foam in, in, in the guitar to, to, to mute that. Mm-hmm. And Mark Stewart was who knows what Mark Stewart was playing on that. You know, it could have been a didgeridoo for all I remember. But yeah. uh, it was, everything was percussion. You know, the 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 the, the keyboard parts that Tony and Alan were playing were all percussion. Right. right? Everything was was stopped. You know, and and and, and of short duration. And it was, uh, it, but it was an incredibly complex arrangement. Uh, but whether it was Kodachrome, I, I don't, I don't know, but. Well, uh, you know, we've, we've been on tours where we don't recognize a song until you get to the second verse. So, yeah. you know, you go, Oh yeah. Okay. I, I think I know this one. Well, it, the evolving arrangements is, it was always one of the greatest joys of the 21 years I spent with Paul. And, yeah. uh, it, uh, I, I will always be in awe of him as an arranger, and not, not just a songwriter, not just a singer, but as an arranger. I mean, there's, there's the only person I can compare him with Prince. Mm-hmm. The same ability to spontaneously create arrangements and, 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 and build a whole new song out of nothing, you know, within, within minutes, you know, not just days, but minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, it's quite a gift. And, and my time with Paul was, only terminated because 
in the fall of 2006, I had to decide whether or not I was going back to James Taylor or whether or not I was going to stay on the, on with Paul while we were out touring on the surprise record. And I had only been with James for like three or four years. James being a Boston boy, I have a huge affinity with him. And, uh, you know, he and I grew up going to see the same guys at, at the club 47 in Cambridge and idolizing the same guitar players. And, uh, we have so much in common and he's become a really good friend. And, uh, I had been with Paul for 21 years and I, I kind of, I, I kind of thought I, I had gotten everywhere I was going to get in that particular relationship, even though it was, uh, an incredible experience to have been brought to Paul's circle of, of creativity and to have been consulted on set lists, to work on arrangements, to work on background vocals, to, you know, me and, me and Mark Stewart running rehearsals when Paul wasn't there and things. It was, it was really, it was, it was, it was amazing when I look back at it, that, that, that Paul trusted me that much and, and was willing to share his uh, creativity with me in that way. And in that way, it was very, very difficult. That, that, that decision at the end of 2006, that nearly broke me. I, I that, that was so hard. And, the day I went into Paul's dressing room to say that I had made the decision to stay with James Taylor was, Oh, I couldn't have felt worse in my life, you know, in Toledo, Ohio at the zoo. You know, it's, it was very strange, very strange seeing Paul without you being out there. Um, you know, I mean, I was there I, another seven or eight years, maybe after that after you and uh it, it was just it's just something i never got used to yeah um you know like i said the last time i saw i mean we actually did some shows uh um in in the uk uh as you were there too i mean we got to see those shows but boy i had the hardest time listening to his set without vince being there oh god it was just it was just, i don't know i mean because I mean, I keyed on him because I always listened really closely to him because I, I, you know, that was my main job. Sure. To, to make sure that he was, you know, set so he could just do what he does, you know. But, um, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, we get these moments. We get these relationships that kind of uh, find a way to define us. You know, and I, I, um, I'm glad that I'm glad that I, uh, I, I had a long run on there too. I mean, I think you were 21. I can't remember because I, I, I was actually supposed to go back to them yet again. When I think it was the Sting tour that they were doing, and uh, and I was, I wasn't available for one day, and uh, they decided that they wanted to go with someone who would be there every day, and uh, yeah, just one of those things. Yeah. And, uh, and, and when I got to see Paul in the UK, uh, was it two years ago now? Yeah. Um, he was, he was, you know, he's still looking at me like, well, you know, why aren't you here? You know, uh, I, you know, you just let him know. I mean, that, that he, he would actually, I know in, when we were in Australia, uh, he actually would 
he got tired of talking to the band. He'd come back and sit with me in the, in the crew space of the, of the plane, you know, and, uh, and it was just a real treat to, to spend time with him. You know? Yeah. Cause, uh, he, he, he was a very interesting man. Great, great to engage in conversation, uh, off the stage. Mm-hmm. Thought one of the most intense people on stage that I've ever worked for. And, oh, yeah. uh, uh, it was, uh, the experience of a lifetime to be, to be part of the Paul Simon world for as long as we were, you know, absolutely. Uh, but that, that show that we did in, in, in Dublin before we did the London one mm-hmm. uh, with, that we shared with, with Paul when James opened for, for those shows mm-hmm. uh, during our set, Mark Stewart and Bagheedi stood next to me for the entire show. Uh, they came out shortly after the set started and stayed for the entire show. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, the three of us just hugged and, and cried a little. Yeah. You know? Uh, it, and we didn't have to say anything, you know? But that, that, that was good closure for me. I needed yeah. that. I really, I, I, I love those two guys so much. And, and it, uh, there was a little, a little tear in my life when, 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 when I left Paul that, that wasn't completely mended in, in, until that moment. One of the great events that occurred during my period with Paul Simon was the opportunity to meet and get to know Edie Burkell. That was a, that, 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 that's a bright jewel in that experience, that's for sure. Uh, and the opportunity to go out on tour with her when, when, when Anthony Aquilato and Michael Kay and I went out as the, the entire crew, uh, uh-huh. it, that, that was, that was a lot of fun. I mean, what, what a wonderful lady she is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now, the, and now the kids are making the names for themselves too. It's so crazy, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty cool. And, uh, Lulu sounds like her mom too. <laughs> yes, indeed. And so uh, it's uh, life goes on, and uh, I, you know, I have no regrets about the decision I made to stay with James Taylor because James Taylor is uh, occupies the same place in the musical pantheon that Paul Simon does. And right. it, it, it and and you know everybody sitting just below the right and left hand of the Beatles. Uh, it's uh, these guys are, you know, like millimeter down from, and so it, it wasn't like I was, I was, you know, trying to go to work for a better artist or, or uh, you know, trying to, to move up in the world. I, I, it was, for, it was, it was a, a, you know, at, at the very least a lateral move. And, but it was, uh, something inside of me uh, needs to hear James Taylor every night and at this point in my life and it was uh, exactly what I needed at the time and, and has remained exactly what I needed at the time and, but the fact that Stevie Nicks has asked me back and that I've been doing her shows and I did the Fleetwood Mac 1819 tour. And, and uh, that 
I, I, I don't think in my wildest dreams I could ever imagine that I would work for James Taylor and Stevie Nicks at the same time uh, or ever at all. Yeah. And, you know, let alone at the same time. Uh, so uh, I'm so grateful to, for all the gifts that, that, that our business has given to me. I, 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 I couldn't have asked for a more uh, fulfilling career or, or, or better artists to work to, to uh, experience that fulfillment with. And uh, it's been challenging, it's, but it's been so rewarding. And mm -hmm. it, it, uh, uh, I'm so happy that I put the guitar down. You know, uh, it was, I, I still sing out in front of house. You know, I sing along with James. I sing along with Stevie, and mm -hmm. you know, and and I sing in tune. So <laughs> it's it's. Uh, uh, I do miss uh, the interaction with Mark Stewart and the band on on Paul. That I mean, that that was a special relationship. Yeah. But I mean, the relationship with with James is uh, obviously. Uh, couldn't find any good people to play in that band. When I look back and, and, and remember that I've been with Steve Gadd for over 30 years consecutively. Yeah, same here. Uh, it, it's, it's really, really humbling in a way. <laughs> and uh, the, our, our musical director in James's band is our bass player, Jimmy Johnson, who, who is such a good friend and such an amazing artist in, in his own right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jimmy is the bass player's bass player. And, and uh, he's, he's a wonderful human being. And, and I couldn't ask for a better immediate boss on the road than Jimmy Johnson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but then we, we, we have Mike, Land, Mike Landau, who's the, who's the, guitar player is guitar player. No one plays on more sessions than Mike Landau. Mm -hmm. And we, we, and then we, Luis Conti is, is the top Latin percussionist in the world is our percussionist. And uh, we have Blue Lou Marini playing saxophone from the Blues Brothers, you know, mm -hmm. and we have Walt Fowler from the Fowler Brothers. who used to be the horn section with Frank Zappa. And, and, and Walt Fowler is, has, has turned into a, hugely successful film score guy now too as well and he's another just consummate musician and larry goldings plays the piano is is there are a few jazz pianists out today who are more competent or, or creative than larry goldings mm -hmm. and uh you know i have my old friend arnold mcculler singing and who i've been working with on and off over the last 40 years and 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 Katie Markowitz sings and Andrea Zahn sings and uh, plays an incredible fiddle. And I, I'm so blessed. I've got, I've, I've got the, uh, the, the, the cream of the crop in this band as we did back in 1990, 91, 92 in Paul's band. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's a real privilege uh, to be able to, uh, work in front of this aggregation of musicians every night and uh it's all culminated by 
the incredible quality of songwriting and performance that comes from James Taylor, but also the incredible humanity exhibited by James Taylor and the intelligence and the sensitivity and the love that he emanates in every moment of the show. And it's, like I said, it's good for me at this point in my life. I, I, I need that, you know, and I, I miss it so much right now. Advances have been so fast. The dependence on new gears, is it making things better or is this a new generation not learning to listen or feel the room? Because do you know what I'm... What, yeah, what I, when I go and I talk with... Uh, like students at Blackbird Academy or at USC, where I used to get guest lecture on a regular basis. Uh, what I always say is, you know, I, you guys are growing up in an age of emulation, right? You're working on trying to emulate an analog console. You're working with plugins that are trying to anal, emulate analog devices. How do you know if you're working on a good emulation if you haven't heard the analog devices to begin with? Mm -hmm. And the opportunity to hear those analog devices, it, it, if you're going to a school like USC or to Blackbird, you're going to be able to hear vintage analog devices. But if you don't have that, that, that uh, uh, availability to you, then how do you experience what a LA two-way comp tube compressor is supposed to sound like, you know? Uh, how, how do you how do you determine whether or not that plugin is a good or or valid emulation, or if it's uh, just somebody's idea of of what they think it might have sounded like? You know, you never know how how many devices did they sample, what 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 was their sampling process, uh, and that's why I try to stay with the big guys when I do plugins and things, is because they they can put the money into it. Yeah, and uh. So it's uh, the obsolescence of equipment is so fast now too that it, I, I think it's put a real burden on sound companies. And because of that, you see the consolidation, especially uh, what Claire Global has been doing right. in, in terms of the, the, the professional audio market. It's because it's um, so many pe people that just don't have the buying power or the available cash to be able to keep up with the incredible number of advances. There are thousands of new devices being produced for the audio market every year. Mm -hmm. And whereas we used to have back in the seventies or eighties, we'd have significant advances every two to three years. Right. That's when uh, Dirk Schubert and I were at Schubert systems. We always used to th think of our obsolescence as three years. Now, it could be as little as three months. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I don't know how people are able to retool because things have gotten so much more expensive along with it. And uh, I pity the poor little guy these days, but I, I also certainly appreciate my relationship with Claire because they are able to give me what I need or what uh, I would like to hear just, just, uh, at, at a rehearsal, say, you know, I can I can go shopping, right? right. You, you can't you can't do that with a small sound company. Uh, and so, while as looking at 
mom and pop businesses going under, I, I, I see it as a sad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uh, availability of, of audio choices that I get by being a, a, a customer at Claire Global is, is, you know, it's, it's infinite at this point. They, mm-hmm. they, have, they now have sound systems from every major manufacturer you know, with uh, their acquisition of Eighth Day, they now have the largest inventory of D&B products in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, with their acquisition of Brit Row, they have the largest uh, acoustics inventory in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, at least under one roof. And, of course, they have their, their, their cohesion s- systems that, that come out of Lidditz, which were... And uh, it's... Uh, it's wonderful to have that choice. And, you know, I, 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 I jokingly said to, to, to Claire when they acquired eighth day, does that mean I can take a D and B system out on the road with me on James? Uh-huh. You know? And so, but that it is a possibility. It could right. happen. And the fact that it could happen is, is a good thing for uh, production, not such a good thing for competition. Right, but going back to your original point, it, it I uh, young kids these days, back when consoles were analog, they all had the same basic layout. You knew there was going to be a mic pre, you knew there was going to be an equalizer, you knew where the patch points were going to be, you knew where the aux sends were going to be. You know, every console worked the same. Every mm-hmm. every channel strip. Uh, at least had the same functions, if not the same names, not in the same places, but at least the same functions. Uh, these days, you have to learn platforms. And platforms are really deep now. Yes. And so, you know, if you can master one console, uh, as, as a young person coming up, uh, that kind of limits your, your, your ability to matriculate doesn't it? I mean, if you if you uh, want to step into a job that, that that's being run on a, uh, a Digico console, and you only know how to work an Avid console, right? You're kind of screwed, right? Yeah. You so are. It, I mean, that's that 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 to me is the drawback, uh, and the learning curve is much much steeper than it was when when I came in in the '70s. That's for mm-hmm. sure. You know, I, I just I I worry because we kind of live in a we have a generation that's coming along that uh, all they've ever heard was MP3s. They haven't heard, you know, <laughs> what what you do and what uh, you know a, a good piece of vinyl can do. I mean, they literally listen to something that has an acceptable amount of distortion on on both sides of the file. Oh, and heavy compression. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it, it, you know, it's it's just it, it's not a perfect medium by any means. It's de- it's a compromised medium because it's a ma- it, you know it's just for mass distribution, and it's uh, yeah, it's hard to think that that the experience gap is that wide, but yes, it is. And you know what what people think of as acceptable audio. Uh, I, I wouldn't be happy with. Uh, I, 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 I don't like spending a lot of time listening to iTunes. You know, I don't, uh, 
I don't like listening to streaming stuff on, 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 you know, I, I, I sat in with Andrea for one thing that that they streamed up from Nashville. that was absolutely exceptional with the, with the guy who plays bass in the Doobie brothers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a thing where there were, there were five of them in, in, in his, his living room and they did a little concert. It was, it was magic. I mean, the audio was really severely compromised. Mm -hmm. They had one mic and when Andrea would play a solo, they'd turn the mic toward her and it's, five people in a semicircle around one microphone. Uh, I, it, it was wonderful because it was Andrea, mm -hmm. you know, and the music being played was exceptionally good, but uh, obviously the audio quality was very poor and uh, it was, uh, it, it was just a, uh, a good look into what we've uh, decided is uh, an acceptable medium. Right. And as you said, let's go back to, let's go back to vinyl. I mean, let's go back to, to, to 16 tracks on two inch magnetic tape uh, at, at, at 15 nips, you know, if you want to hear what music sounds like. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, once again, I go back to, thank God I have that in my past, you know, uh, because when I'm putting together a show and I'm auditioning plugins, I know what I'm listening for, right? When a, a younger guy who's never been exposed to, to analog, real vintage analog gear is putting together a show, it's a whole different world. It's like, it, it's like animation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're, we're coming at, 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 at the projects from, vastly different places but i have to say that i've heard some exceptionally good shows from younger engineers uh so i'm not saying it can't happen uh, no but no i mean but, and, but i mean you we've we've seen that where we had uh we had well one time one tour we ended up getting a uh a broadway mixer out with us and the the problem was that they they're very used to being in one building and one one scene and and being able to 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 have months to get it right yeah uh, as opposed to the free for alls that uh, we experience on the road sometimes oh uh, exactly and uh, I, I I had forgot I had forgotten about that particular experience so that, well, thank you for reminding me about and that. I don't think. We have to also put a little bit out to say that uh, we were also doing production rehearsals at the Gorge, which uh, I don't know if many people have ever done before. <laughs> That's right. We're living at that dumpy motel in George Washington. Yep. <laughs> oh, the things I purged from my memory. Yes. And, uh, I, and I, I would rather remember the Four Seasons. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's if that was if, funny. Yeah, it was. But I'm just saying that it, it was one of those situations where, uh, you know, even a blind pig can find a truffle. You know, sometimes, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's crazy that uh, that you get these people that just don't have the ability to. I mean, I've seen you with other people on the sound crew where. Um, you guys would identify a problem and you'd, and you'd deal with it. 
Um, whereas uh, it seemed like with with uh, with people that are not qual, I mean, it's not they're not qualified. It's not experienced to deal with these. Okay, we were in a we were in a shed the night before, and then we were in a theater, and then here we are on a mountain stage at the edge of a canyon. You know, I mean, yeah. It's like, okay, you know, what do you do? And, you know, I've, I've seen you interact with, uh, with a, a number of other engineers and say, you know, I think we have a little problem with this frequency today. You know, you right. might want to be aware of it, you know, and it does make a difference. Whereas uh, it, it freaks me out to actually be with some people where um, I'm doing a, a line check and uh, with a digital console and it's like, as long as they see the, the the lights light up to a certain point, that's all they care about, you know? And it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, I, you know, I, not that yeah, I, wanted, I see it. Yeah. You get some, oh, okay. I see that. Yeah. Oh, you got to hear that too. Yeah. You have to hear that. I mean, I don't care how bad a guitar player yeah, I am. Exactly. You, you still need to hear what's coming out of this thing. Uh, exactly. Transparency versus influence now this is something that I, I i also i mean i think of you in a lot of sound situations because of the amount of tours that we've done together and um and very often um what uh, an artist may be looking for is complete transparency and uh and but you get lucky sometimes and you work with people where you can actually have some influence on what's going on and uh, and to have a relationship with the artist and the outcome of the show, um, you know, sometimes you have to draw out what the artist is trying to work for by uh, you know by using your skills from in front of house. You're dealing sometimes you're dealing with people that are very complex, and and it's 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 necessary for you to draw that all out, you know, and, uh, and get the fact that, you know, your taste is going to assuage their fears that they've got, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. It's a, it's not, there's not much of a question there. I mean, it's, it's really just sort of a, a comment, I guess, on, um, on the rela- personal relationships between the artist and the, and the front of house engineer. I was so lucky on Paul to get off to a a really good relationship with him to right off the bat. Uh, and, and I, I owe a lot of it to Mark Silag for the two of us coming up with building him a three quarter size Keith Monk's mic stand. Uh, that <laughs> when Paul saw that he was just beaming, absolutely mm-hmm. beaming. And that put Paul in a great mood to start rehearsals. The relationships that came out of that bunch, uh, they just, they're unique to anything else I have, uh, any other family. I've, I've been very blessed to be able to be with some other good groups, including James's bunch. And, um, but, uh, the, the, the Paul bunch, uh, you know, you had to, you had to get, get through the waters the best you could and, and, uh, and, and, and watch out for yourself, you know, but, uh, it's uh yeah, just a remarkable, a remarkable uh, artist in a remarkable time. Yeah. Did any, any of the difficulties just made us uh, a tighter group? Absolutely. You know, it it it, it bonded us 
closer together and uh, it made us all ask ourselves for a little bit more, you know, and I, I, I credit Paul Simon with pushing my career as hard as he possibly could demanding as much from me as he possibly could mm -hmm. and me demanding from myself to fulfill what he wanted, you know, and it taught me incredible lessons on professionalism and, uh, uh, you know, it took me a long time to, 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 to park my ego at the door, you know, and, but it, cause when I first came up, I was pretty brash, but at, by the time we got to West Hampton state police Academy, uh, I pretty much toned it down a lot. And I was incredibly appreciative of the, the, the job that we had and the, uh, and the family that we built. And it's, uh, you know, the wonderful thing is that I can talk to anybody on the crew. You know, I can, I can not talk to Michael K for a year, but I can get him on the phone and we'll talk like we just saw each other yesterday. You know, yeah. same thing with Jerry, same thing with Jim Corona, same thing with you. We'll, we'll, we'll always be brothers forever. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, uh, it's an opportunity that, that, uh, not only to excel as, musicians and technicians but to excel as people and and to to uh to bring a huge project uh into a intimate and beautiful reality you know that the, the evolution that occurred is always going to be an unforgettable thing to me because uh, we started with just absolute chaos and we ended up with that show that was just by the time we hit the Tacoma Dome we were stunningly good mm -hmm. you know and it was uh, what, New Year's Eve right yep New Year's Eve 1990 yep it's funny yeah it's it's uh I actually, I can't remember. I think I actually have a recording of of the feed from the uh, Central Park show. Oh, cool! Which which had not been uh, touched yet. I mean, there were some problems. I think the they didn't have percussion for the first half of the show. Yeah, that's what I heard. But um, it didn't matter. There's so many damn microphones on stage. It's not like we missed everything. <laughs> but, well, uh, it, no. It, Roy would turned up the crowd mics so yeah. he could get the percussion. Yeah. And uh, when the show started, of course, we started with Obvious Child and, mm -hmm. and with all of those guys from all the doom with all the sorters. We were, were creating a small earthquake in the middle of Central Park with 100 S4s inside, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, Phil starts out on, 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 the, on the headsets. You know, here's Phil Ramon, the godfather of our business, mm -hmm. right? And, and one of my later mentors, you know, I, I would not be where I am today without the wonderful mentorship in, mm -hmm. of, of Phil Ramon. Yeah. And uh, I miss him. I just, he was such a wonderful man. I, I, I miss him so much. Mm -hmm. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're doing Obvious Child and Roy is freaking out in the, in the truck, you know, obviously, because he doesn't have any percussion. And, uh, Phil just says, 
Roy, just turn up the crowd mics. Takes the headset off and never puts it on again for the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah. And Phil and I, and that when Wolfie, we danced our way through that yeah. entire show in Central Park for 750,000 people. We had so much fun. That, that, that might have been, that is, well, it was not no might about it. it was, that was definitely the best day of my professional life ever. And it's, I'm trying to remember what it was that we, we actually did. They actually had 25 people on the call for that show. And the next day we were at Garden State Arts Center and there was like 64 people on the call. <laughs> and you're going, well, you know. Well, they had a lot of uh, setup time, though, on, at, at, at Central Park. They know? sure did, yeah. And th- th- the Claire guys did a wonderful job of putting all those delays up, too. You know, because there were six delay towers on each side, and they are mm-hmm. all being fed by, by uh, RF lines, you know, not – so every we needed line of sight we needed uh you know continuity that way but because there were just so many people there's no way you could run cables on the ground you know Mm -hmm. and uh god i remember how proud paul was after that show when we went to the tavern on the green afterwards Mm -hmm. oh god he was in seventh heaven you know and the fact that he could walk across the street and go home was pretty cool too (laughs) didn't need to pay for a cab (laughs) no that was an amazing night. I, yeah, I, I, that is indelibly imprinted on my brain as the best day of your professional career. It doesn't get better than that. I'm glad we, that we had them, you know. I mean, I, I think about the people that uh, – and this comes to, like, my last question here, which is, you know, what the hell happened to our industry? I mean, it just I – never, I never even – I never thought we'd ever see see it happen like this, where in a matter of a week, it seemed like the entire world of, of live events went away. And uh, I, it's just, to me, it's just sort of astounding because uh, I never thought the crowd was going to be the reason we didn't do this anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you would think that you would get incompetence or injury or, it, you know, uh, a, a bad relationship with the artist. And, you know, there are any number of reasons that we could lose our jobs. I mean, oh, right. God, we're on trial every single day. I mean, that's right. You're only as good as your last show is 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 the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. And short memories. Uh, it's always been a hazardous job, but it's uh, it's also been. Uh, Dependable. Right. You no. Know? And I went from blissfully being in New York city with James Taylor when we were re- releasing the, uh, the standards album that he put out and we were doing promotion. We were doing all the TV shows. We were doing iHeartRadio. We were doing all sorts of stuff and having a wonderful, wonderful experience in New York until that's the second week we were there. And the, the, then the news starts trickling out about this virus. And so, because I was there the last uh, week of February and the first week of March in New York City. And apparently in that period, the disease was already raging in New York City. It's just nobody knew about it. So we were incredibly lucky to get out of there and and be well with the the number of people that we went to to see. Oh, we we did probably 
six or seven gigs and TV shows during, mm-hmm. in, in, in the time that we were there. And uh, it, to, to have that come and, and be the reason that we're unemployed, uh, just no one could have prepared for this. There's yeah. absolutely no way you could have prepared for the possibility of being a, having no income for a year and a half. Right. You know, and thank God I listened to everybody who said, you know, always have two years worth of living in the bank. To have life cut short this way uh, is something that I certainly wasn't prepared for. And and every other entity in, in, in the live event business wasn't prepared for. Right. And we're all making it up as we go along. And I'm just hoping at my age that I get one more shot on the road. You know, I'm kind of thinking that, that, that if we do get to go out on the road with James next year, and if Stevie works some next year, that I actually might make my exit after that. Cause it's, uh, it might be time to leave room for somebody else. And though uh, I'm sure James will be able to successfully talk me into staying if he wanted to. <laughs> so I love that job. I, I, uh, that's the, the hardest part is being away from the music and the, and the family. Uh, we're a quirky family on James Taylor, but we're, we're really a fun family. And, uh, I, I, I love all the relationships on that tour, it, but, it, but none more than with James Taylor himself. I mean, that, that, uh, the friendship that's developed with James is, is one of the greatest gifts life has ever given me. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I'm very proud of being on the B team. It's, uh, it's been a really nice experience the last couple of years. It's, it's something I, I, I wish everybody could experience is, is working for an artist like James. Yeah. Uh, who would be at every load in and load out working with us if we'd let him do it. Yeah. Uh, he is uh, a man who can walk through any culture, you know, or any economic strata, strata and still be the most admired man in the room. You know, I mean, he's, he's an exceptional personality and an exceptional person. Yeah. And uh, it's a relationship that's, not only touched my soul musically, but touched my heart emotionally. I mean, James is just a good person. Yeah, he is. And, uh, it's, uh, it's invaluable, uh, to have spent so much time with him over the last 16 years now. And these 16 years have have flown by in a heartbeat. And, uh, it's, the joy of my life to mix those uplifting songs and uh, those songs that bring people closer together and to watch it happening are all around me too is uh, I, I have this unique experience out in front of house uh, because I, I have a lot of emotional control uh, over, over the presentation and uh marrying my emotional sensibilities to James Taylor's songwriting and singing uh, has seemed to have been a pretty good marriage. And it's, uh, 
it's reflected in the faces of the people watching the show. They, 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 they're, they're smiling all the way through the show unless the women are crying. Right. You know? And sometimes the men are crying. You know, I, I, I still get it because I used to sing uh, Sweet Baby James to, to, to Zach as his lullaby. Uh, you know, I can get a tear in my eye when, 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 when Sweet Baby James comes around, you know, or Close Your Eyes. All the stuff that I used to sing for, for lullabies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to sing Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys to Zach, too. <laughs> Those were pretty much the three. Well, I, uh, I, I just am in tremendously gr- grateful for the people that we've had a chance to work with on stage and off stage. And, uh, and, you know, I owe a lot to you for, uh, putting in a good word for me because it basically took me and shot me straight into outer space with, uh, with, uh, Mark and, and everybody. I mean, it was just, uh, from that point on, I mean, I, I have never, I had never really wanted a tour. It's always been there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, it's, uh, it's a very strange time, I think, for, for, for all of us, you know, and, uh, and I want, I want to get back and I want to hear, uh, hear the roar again. And, uh, and I want I, I want that rush when the house lights go down. You know, yeah. I want that rush again. You know, mm-hmm. there's nothing like it. Nothing. No, absolutely nothing mm-hmm. like it. And if there's one person I wish I could share it with, uh, one more time, it would be Andy Satil. Uh, and we have to say, you know, uh, how much we love Andy for mm-hmm. Forster as well. Yep. And Tommy Willis, God rest them both. And, but I give anything to have Andy over my left shoulder again, one last time, you know, uh, that was, that was a tough one. An 18 year relationship between a front of house guy and a systems guy is, is very, very, unusual and unique in this business and uh he was he was like my little brother and i miss him constantly mm-hmm. and uh but i have to say that 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 claire did me an incredible solid by by uh giving me the chance to work with thomas morris uh and thomas has done an incredible job of filling shoes that were almost impossible to fill when he stepped in to take over for andy in, in, in 2018 and uh I really appreciate all, all that Thomas has put in as, as trying to relate to a guy he's 42 years younger than, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I have to commend him on his patience and his, uh, his perseverance uh, because he's, he's turned himself into an invaluable friend as well. And uh, I look forward to all of us getting back together on the James Taylor stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be real nice. Yeah, it would, nice. it, it, I, you know, it, just one more time, I, you know. So May 15th, you know, keep those fingers crossed, and May 15th, and uh, the, the tour with Jackson Brown is, uh, were you there for any of the shows in 17 that we did with Jackson? No. Uh, uh, it's a great choice. To have to have those two bands on the same bill, mm-hmm. it's an absolutely great choice, uh, yeah. and I love the, the the way we've been touring the last few years with Bonnie Raitt. That's that that's been a great choice as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of 
meshing of the music and 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 the the sensibilities of the audience you can't get any better than james taylor and jackson brown mm-hmm. uh and so that i'm i'm really looking forward to that and uh the uh the guy who mixes front of house for 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 jackson brown paul dieter is uh, is a man i have immense respect for and uh i i can't wait to share front of house with him and uh, uh, please let us have this opportunity but may 15th sounds pretty optimistic at this point don't you think yeah well like i said uh it's great to see in rolling stone that i'm supposed to go back to work on october 23rd um i'll I'll let you know how it goes but uh you know we're gonna give it a try and you know i i felt from the get-go that some of these smaller racks are going to have a, they're going to test the waters for everybody. And, uh, if you know, we can be in a more of a controlled, uh, uh crowd, you might be able to figure out uh, the right way to do this. Well, I'll be interested to find out how the experiment went in Germany when they, they did a show for 8,000 people. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen yet whether or not they've, they've, they've done a follow-up on that. Uh, but it was what three or four weeks ago now. So they yeah. should be able to have some data on, uh, on what infections rate rates were like. So I'm, I'm anxiously waiting to hear that mm-hmm. because that has more, more relevance to us than, than, than drive-in shows or, or, uh, I don't know. If, did, did you see on the internet, the pictures of the, the show they did in, 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 uh, Newcastle on Tyne, uh, with, with the little corrals for everybody. How that can't be any fun to go sit in a corral, you know, uh, that, and plus, you know, when you're sitting in a little thing like that, you know, you, you, it's more like you're at home watching TV, isn't it? it I, I would think there was probably if a, a constant undercurrent of conversation through the entire show. And you know what that sounds like. It turns into eventually when too many people are talking. And it, turns, James, it, it turns into Chastain Park is what yeah, happens. Exactly. And at, at the James Taylor show, that would be so distracting because so much of the show was so quiet. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I didn't see much future in that. That, that, that looked more like, you know, uh, a uh, video game convention, you know, where everybody gets their own little platform to set up their computer system and, mm-hmm. uh, and then do things on a big screen. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, whatever they come up with, I'm sure we're going to give it a try. Well, the only way uh, we get back to real life is a vaccine. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's our only way out of this. And, and let's, please don't let them rush it in, into this and we have more disasters because that'll just set us back a whole other year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just hope people have the patience to – to, and and, and uh, the human kindness to wait until it's 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 uh, effective uh, for at least seventy to seventy five percent of the individuals who take it, mm-hmm. uh, and the, otherwise it, it it doesn't make any sense at all. If you, if, what's the point of having a fifty percent effective vaccine? You it, know? There isn't. You know, I mean. Uh... You know, uh, it's it's just sort of adding to the insanity of what we've been through in the past three and a half years. You know, I mean, here you know here we are, and 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 all we want to do, if, you know, I mean, I 
I know I'm sick in the head, but all I want to do is really get on a bus, but I don't think you can do any social distancing with 12 people on a bus. On oh, a exactly. Bus. And, and think, think about the whole kettle of fish. It opens when what happens when one person on the crew tests positive. That's right. Yeah. I, uh, I just, uh, my friends with, uh, Metallica, they, uh, they did a couple weeks of rehearsals and then did that, uh, event in Sonoma, um, a few weeks back. And, uh, it was very interesting because they had a COVID compliance person on the, right. on the spot. They were wearing masks from the minute they left the hotel to the minute they got back to the hotel. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they were, uh, they were very, very strict about it. And it looks like they, you know, it looks like it was a clean show. I think everybody's cool. healthy at this point. So, but you know, uh, the first one, one of the first uh, people I, I mean, I think we all know somebody now. Our, our, my yard guy got tested positive, but uh, I found out that uh, uh, Larry Campbell had a they was they had that show at the Beacon in in March. Yeah, for that. Yeah, they had they had a lot of people sitting in. And, and uh, out of in, in the keyboard position, six different keyboard players played in that position, and three of them came out of that show Ooh. testing positive. And one of them was Ivan Neville, and I, Ivan was sick oh, for, wow. uh, for a couple of months. So uh, I talked to him. Uh, that's got to be a month or so ago. Wow! But, but uh, yeah, it's it's just you know, it was happening then. You know, so just. We're not. We're going to have to do things that we're not comfortable by. But uh, you know, hey, I'll wear a mask. I'm over it. The good thing is that people need to be able to gather in large numbers in a common purpose. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, we've seen it here in California with 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 mega churches, mm-hmm. you know, defying state orders against. Uh, large assemblies. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a, a church here in Thousand Oaks. Uh, this guy over in Newbury Park has a, a church where three to 4,000 people regularly attend. Mm-hmm. And he has been defying the state of California and holding regular services. Yeah. And there's, I mean, while, while it's stupid in terms of a, a, a pandemic, uh, it does show the need for gathering in large numbers in the, in, in, for a common purpose. And it's something that's that's basic to our humanity, and thank God it is, because that's going to get us what, what back to work finally. Mm-hmm. Is that that experience of, uh, you know, it's rock concerts, had, you know, became uh, the new religion, you know, and uh, it, not not as far as a, a deity is concerned, but as far as you know, packing a church, you know, yeah. instead of a, a cathedral, it became an arena. Right. But it was the same energy. Right. right? It was still that same energy, that, 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 you know, trying to trying to capture the love, trying to capture all the uplifting parts of what it's like to be human. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have faith that that, 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 that that will drive everyone back into arenas once, 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 uh, it's determined that we, we can safely vaccinate uh, large numbers of people. So in that way, I look at uh, nine months from now as being a long time. 
in 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 other ways, I look at it as being a short time as far as the development of a vaccine goes. So, so I try to temper my hope with uh, an expectation with 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 a realization that that medical advances move slowly, and that while I would love to go back out on the road with 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 James and Stevie, we're all in a high risk group. Right. And uh, we have to be incredibly careful. You know, there's a lot of us over 70 on the James tour, you know, and, uh, you know, on even on Stevie's tour, this Stevie, Waddy and me, we're 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 all over 70. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that has to be uh, in the forefront of everyone's mind is the fact that 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 we're not as young as we used to be and we're more susceptible to this disease than younger people with better, you know, better immune systems. Yeah. So, uh, I don't, uh, I don't look at anything pessimistically, but I do understand timelines. And, uh, unless we see something that, that is in successful third stage testing, uh, by Christmas, then there's no way we're getting on the road in May. Right. That just ain't going to happen. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, looking down the road with hope, but tempering my, my, my expectation with, with, with knowledge. And uh, I'll be, but I'll be really disappointed if I don't get back on the bus one last time, you know? Oh, your uh, knees I'm, won't, but I mean... <laughs> Well, I've, I've really tried to, to use this time off to, to my advantage. Uh, when Zach was in, uh, our, when our son was in high school, he was a serious basketball player. And uh, when he was about, I got him a Bowflex to bulk up, right? So we have this full Bowflex and the rigors of touring. And I can, uh, I, I, I can do the, the physical part of the job as well as the mental part of the job. Yeah. And so, uh, in trying to keep my mind busy, I've been trying to learn about, uh, immersive audio systems and, and, and object based mixing. So, uh, which is a whole other step in evolution of, 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 of sound engineering and sound systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went down to a demo at, at, at D and B they have a facility down in Long Beach. Now I went down for a demo of their, uh, 3D immersive system, and boy, that was impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I'm 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 looking forward to the time where fixed installations in Vegas uh, will be using these immersive systems. Like uh, they do it at the Hard Rock with Aerosmith. They have a uh, a, a system with acoustics. Mm-hmm. I've I've heard mixed results as far as the success or failure of that goes, but uh, uh, I I would think that. Uh, a showroom that has the dimensions and the budget in order to put one of these new immersive systems in would, I, I would jump at it if I, if I were mm-hmm. at a fixed installation in Las Vegas, because it really is a wonderful experience. And it, it, it's another thing that, that, that jumps the industry forward as well. You know, that's a whole new technology and a whole new set of, uh, uh, of, of, principles and, and instructions and uh, practices that all engineers will have to learn down the line. So I'm trying to get a head start on that while I'm home. 
I just don't want to, I don't want to become an LED wall guy. I want to still do backline. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, want, I want to hear people playing instruments. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the, the, the one thing I've stayed away from uh, in my career is anything that's pre-recorded, you know? Uh, the only time I, I, I ever had anything more than, you know, a couple of tracks of special effects, you know, added, added into a, a live mix was when we did Cher in Las Vegas in the three years that I did her in Las Vegas, because we had to have Sonny on a multi-track. You know, if she's going to sing duets with Sonny, you know, it had to be on a multi-track. And so, you know, we, we brought in various elements of the, of, the, uh, of the old songs. that. So I think we had 16 channels of Pro Tools, which, you know, two or three might be playing on any given song. It, it, but it was, that was fun. But it was, it was Cher was always singing live. The band was always playing live, and it was a killer band. And mm-hmm. background singers were always singing live. This was just in addition to. But you know, I, I I've drawn the line. At, I I will never do a show where the band and the and the lead singer is on is is pre-recorded. I would never do that in my life. I just see that as stealing. Mm-hmm. But that's me. You know, I would. Yeah, you know, that's my own personal rules for behavior. You know, you're not a playback guy. No, I ain't no playback guy. <laughs> and I got my fingers crossed. I'm, I, I, you know, I'm talking to voodoo doctors. I'm, 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 I'm going every way I can to, 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 to make this happen. And, you know, I, I, I was so disheartened when uh, doctors came out and said that, you know, a vaccine might not be readily available until the second half of 2021. And we're, we're not going back to work until there's an effective vaccine. Yeah. So I'm trying to come to grips with the fact that I might already be retired. I don't know. I don't know. I'm 71 now and I'm I'm strong still. I'm I'm healthy still. I think I can go out and do another year or so touring. And I just hope I get the chance. Well, you know, you've been on a couple of different Stanley Cup teams, uh, so far in your career. So I, I think there might be another chance to hoist the cup. Don't you worry. <laughs> Is it work? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I think we've got a, 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 a bit to deal with now. All I have to do is, is chop it up and put it in the right order. All right. And, and, and ask Michael K if, if, if it's okay. He'll say something. <laughs> he, he, he didn't. He didn't like the fact that I didn't have very much compression on my vocals. He said he was complaining about hearing me breathing in between questions. <laughs> I love that man. Yeah. Well, 